Amen, amen. How many of you are ready to get in the book of Revelation tonight? Amen. All right, Father, thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts, Lord. We need it. Strengthen us. Illuminate us, Lord. Shine on our hearts with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Here comes Robert. All right. Last time we saw, and I'll do a little background, a little backup, just to refresh you. But last time we saw that the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, everybody remember that? The temple was destroyed. It was destroyed by the Romans. And that was the second time the temple of God had been destroyed. It was destroyed by the Romans when they destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem, killed over a million Jewish people. And the rest of the Jewish people were scattered to the four corners of the world for 20 centuries until 1948, when they became a nation again. All right? Now, we saw that that temple is somehow, some way, going to be rebuilt on its ancient location. And it just happens to be right where the Dome of the Rock is, which is the major place of Muslim worship. I've been there. I've been in it. I've experienced it. Now, I didn't, of course, do what they do, but I watched, and I just kind of took a look. And it's this huge place. Dome of the Rock, uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful on the outside, um, but it was built right where the temple once stood before the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. The Bible predicts that it's got to be rebuilt. Where is it predicted? The book of Revelation. It's going to be rebuilt. That may happen after Antichrist brokers a peace treaty with the Jewish people, bringing Arab-Israeli peace, finally. This peace treaty, by the way, is going to happen at the very beginning of the Great Tribulation, and it may actually be the trigger of the Great Tribulation. But that's coming. There's going to be a peace treaty Temple's going to be rebuilt. And we also learned that, one, that the one and the same Antichrist, after it's rebuilt, is going to commit what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation. Watch this now. This happens at the three and a half year mark. Halfway through the seven year tribulation, because the great tribulation is seven years long. This will trigger, when he goes in and commits the abomination of desolation, at the halfway point of the Great Tribulation, it's going to trigger a ferocious persecution against the Jewish people, probably unlike anything ever seen. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15, give you an example, Jesus, the greatest prophet in the Bible, said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, this abomination is going to stand or be stood up or be placed in the holy place. Jesus said, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea, Jesus said, you better hook them to the mountains. 
Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. In other words, don't even worry about your stuff. Get out of there. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight is not in the winter or on the Sabbath. Because in the winter it's harder to run the Sabbath. They're going to have conscience issues with exerting energy on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. Now listen to this, everybody. No, nor ever shall be. Now you got to stop and think. Millions killed in World War I. Millions more killed in World War II. Think of the worst thing that's ever happened on earth. Jesus says here, when Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation, what it releases and unleashes will be the worst thing that has ever hit earth. He went on to say, in fact, unless those days were shortened by God, nobody would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Amen. God is in charge of time. Amen? Now, what is the abomination of desolation exactly? Because it sounds terrible, abomination of desolation. That sounds awful. What is it? It means simply this. It is to bring something accursed into the temple and on into the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory of God rests. All right? So you got the temple. you got the outer court, inner court, Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum where the ark is, where the cherubim are, where the Shekinah glory rested between the wings of the cherubim. That's the Holy of Holies. When something is taken in there that God did not order, and even worse, it's something that is accursed, that's the abomination that, that makes desolate. It causes desolation. When it happens, little history. It's happened once. It happened in 167 BC, so 167 years before Christ, when a Greek ruler by the name of, uh, of Antiochus Epiphanes set up an altar to Zeus over the altar of burnt offerings in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem which was the second rebuilt temple. Antiochus Epiphanes did this, committed the abomination of desolation in the second temple. All right? He hated the Jews. He persecuted the Jews. Daniel predicted his arrival. Daniel predicted this man would come on the world stage. He was a type of Antichrist. He wasn't the Antichrist, but he was sure a type, like Hitler was a type. Antiochus Epiphanes was a type. And he also went on to sacrifice a pig on the same altar. Something forbidden. Something that God had told his people, don't eat it, don't touch it. But he went in there intentionally to desecrate the temple. And it was the first abomination of desolation to happen in history. And Jesus is warning here about a repeat of this in a rebuilt temple. Now, for the first three and a half years, 
as we continue through the, the narrative of the book of Revelation, the new world leader, that is the Antichrist, will maintain uh, uh, warm and friendly relations with Israel. He, he's going to come on. Listen, everybody. He's going to make Israel believe, I'm your buddy. I'm all for you. I, I, I got your back. I believe in you. And, and you know what? Um, I want you to be able to reinitiate your Old Testament sacrificial mosaic system. He may even be behind. Don't know for sure, but he may be behind the rebuilding of the third temple. He may be the final uh, impetus that does it. Don't know. It could be. But he's going to act like he's their friend, and they're finally going to believe in him. And then his, his coup, his, his, his wonder of wonders, uh, political miracle, he's going to broker a peace treaty between the Israel, uh, Israelites and the Arabs. There will be an Arab-Israeli peace treaty brokered by him. Now, we've seen a type and a shadow of that in the sense that, uh, remember, Carter tried doing that in the 70s. Clinton tried doing it later. Many world leaders have tried to broker such a thing, but it always fell apart. You know why? Because it's not supposed to happen until he does it. He'll break his treaty. This is what will happen. He'll broker it, and they'll go, well, he's our hero. He's our guy. And for three and a half years, they'll believe that he wants nothing but their good. But three and a half years in, this is what the Bible says, and we're going to read it. Three and a half years in, this man is going to walk into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he's going to declare himself to be God. That's what the Bible teaches. He's going to say, I am God. When the Jews see this, they freak because they have been led to believe he's their friend. But now, oh, no, no, I'm not. He's going to let them know, I'm not about your God. I'm about me, and I'm actually God. And they're going to realize at three and a half years in, they got took. They got snookered. They got deceived. But it will be a day late and a dollar short. Because the second three and a half years of tribulation, all the desolation, the abomination that causes or that makes desolate or causes desolation will be unleashed. Now, during this time also, the... Antichrist is going to have a thorn in his side. And the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we're about to read it, so hang on, I'm just giving you a, a sort of lead in. There's going to be two witnesses <clears throat> that come on the scene in the first three and a half years of the book of Revelation, of the tribulation. And they're going to preach, and they're going to call the world to repent, and they're going to stand for God. And they're going to be a thorn in the side of a Christ-rejecting, godless world. Two men. And until God allows it, they are invincible. It's a thorn in the side of this evil ruler because no matter what he tries to do, he can't take them out because they're protected. Listen to what Revelations 11. Well, we're in chapter 11 tonight. Verse 3. Let's begin reading. I will give power to my two witnesses. Now, this is, remember, 
the great tribulation time period. I will give power to my two witnesses. They'll be clothed in burlap. Who does that sound like? John the Baptist. But let's go on. And they will prophesy during those 1260 days, the first three and a half years. They will prophesy, which means they will declare God's truth. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Look at verse 5. If anybody tries to harm them, get ready, everybody. Fire flashes from their mouth and consumes their enemies. Did you ever wish you could do that? Did you ever just wish you could do that just, just, just once, right? What if you had that power right now? What would you do with it? <laughs> be a whole lot of ashes appearing all over the place. But now watch this. Now, the Bible is clear here. They have a supernatural ability to, to fend off enemies. He says, this is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy, like Elijah did. And they had the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood. Who did that? Moses. So as far as I'm concerned, we got Moses and Elijah somehow or another revisiting the planet. Or at least somebody that does what they did. Because Elijah was the prophet of fire. Moses was the prophet that caused the waters to turn to blood. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. There you got Moses again. So since it was Moses and Elijah, if you'll remember, that appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember that? It could well be this is them again. Moses represents the law of God. Elijah represents the prophets. Now when the Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel and invades Jerusalem, the two witnesses are finally slain. They're slain at the halfway mark. Revelation 11, 7, when they complete their testimony, the beast, that's the Antichrist, that comes up out of the bottomless pit, will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. So God allows them to be killed, but watch this. I want you to notice something, that how uncannily John predicts the ability of our present-day world to view something worldwide in real time, all at the same time, which can only happen via television or the internet. Look at what John predicted. Please catch this. This is uncanny because John wrote this in the first century. He says, and their bodies, verses 8 and 9, their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified, and for three days and a half, three and a half days, watch this, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. Now, do you know how those, that passage mystified Bible scholars in the past? How, how can this be? How is the whole world, every tribe, every people, every language, every nation, going to stare at two men lying in the streets of Jerusalem in real time at the same time? How are they going to do it? And they used to just go, don't get it. I just have to trust God and his word. Because sometimes the word becomes clear as time passes. 
So then came satellite television and 24-7 news channels. And now it's an easy thing to accomplish. You can have ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSLSD, I mean MSNBC, staring at those two bodies at the same time. John just wrote down what the Spirit of God moved on him to say. And now look, it's totally possible. Wow. Another amazing proof that the Bible is a supernatural book predicting times and events and inventions millennia into the future. Now notice next how a world experiencing the great tribulation, look at this now, rejoices over the death of these two men. This is the, this is the population that is experiencing these terrible judgments. But look at their character. It says in Revelations eleven nine, they threw a big party. It says, nobody will be allowed to bury them, and all the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. How did they torment them? With truth. All right, party hardy, the two prophets are dead. But hang on. The party doesn't last long. Revelation is 11, 11, but after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Can you imagine ABC commentators, CBS, NBC, CNN? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> because look, they stood up. They were dead. They stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them, which was the whole world. I guess so. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. Whoa, folks. Are you with me? Say, so do you really believe this, Jeff? Of course I believe it. Why would I not believe it? Right? If you believe Genesis 1-1, you can go anywhere with miracles. Okay? So, yes, of course. It, it, they are raptured up. They are taken up. These two witnesses will be resurrected from the dead and caught up into heaven with every nation watching. Party's over. Then begins the worst of the tribulation period. At the precise moment this happens, an earthquake is going to rock the city. Revelation 11, 13, at the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. That's Jerusalem. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Wow. So here we go. Now, you might recall that God is, has, um, a lot of times in history, sent signs via natural um, via nature or, or natural catastrophes in order to signify that something of, of great spiritual significance has taken place. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible says there was from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. From high noon to three, it was as dark as night. What did that? I personally believe the sorrow of God. His own son was being crucified. 
And then when Jesus died, Matthew tells us the earth quaked and the rocks were split. So there you go again. When something of great significance happened, there was a natural phenomena that seemed to react to it. And it's going to be this, when these two God-appointed witnesses are killed and resurrected, a great earthquake is going to rock Jerusalem. And John warns next, the second terror is past. This is verse 14. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly, and that's the seventh trumpet. The blowing of the seventh trumpet is finally about to happen. Now, remember how we said at the beginning of our study that as John is shown these various visions, uh, he is taken up into heaven, dropping the signal for some. Am I on? Am I on? There we go. Okay, I'm gonna. Do I need to use the mic? Okay, there we go. Everybody say, none of this in heaven. All right. Now, John is taken up and brought back down, taken up, brought back down. He's shown things in heaven, and he's shown calamities that are coming upon the earth. So now he is taken back up into heaven to witness the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. This is when Jesus takes over everything now. Everything is turned over to him now. This last trumpet is going to encompass the entire time period of the final 42 months, described in detail all the way through chapter 19. So this seventh trumpet sets the stage for the rest of the book. As we've already mentioned, this final 1,262 days is called the days of the voice of the seventh angel. Now in heaven, John's seeing in heaven now, he again sees the 24 elders and they represent you and me. They represent the church. Because where are we when all this is going on? We're up there. Come on, everybody. No more high gas prices up there. No more inflation up there. Amen? Now, and what are those 24 elders doing? This is what heaven looks like. They're rejoicing, they're worshiping, and proclaiming that the time of rewards in heaven is at hand. And at the very same time all this is going on up there, the earth is experiencing vicious judgments down here. Verse 16, the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshiped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was. I've gotten calls on the radio said, when did God begin? He never began. He's always been. And this is one of those confirmations of it. He is now but he always was. How far back you want to go, he's always there. For now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. Verse 18, the nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. 
It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name from the least to the greatest. It's time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Notice, everybody, rewards are given out. While all this is happening on earth, rewards are given out to the church up there. Okay? That's when we're rewarded for how we lived our lives on earth. Did we glorify God? Did we serve him? Did we reach people? Did we pray? Did we bear fruit? Did we use our gift? Did we, did we live for him? Did we give a cup of cold water to somebody in the name of Jesus? Did we feed the hungry in his name, give water to the thirsty in his name? Did we visit the, the imprisoned in his name? Did we, did we do things, good works? Did we do good works to the glory of God, not to toot our own horn, but to glorify God. Did we do that? Because here at this time, halfway through the tribulation, the church is up there receiving rewards. Amen. All who fear your name from the very least to the very greatest. Amen. Following this incredible scene, the remaining chapters of John's revelation describe the conclusion of history, civilization as we know it ladies and gentlemen, is going to almost totally self-destruct. And the Lord Jesus Christ will intervene in majesty and intervene in glory. Now, chapter 11 closes out with even more tumult. Let's look at verse 19. Then in heaven, John's still up there, the temple of God was open and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. And look what John witnesses. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. Coming on who? A populace that would celebrate the death of two of God's people. Now, we're going to do just a little bit of chapter 12 and we'll, and we'll close. But I got to take you a little bit further. It's so powerful. As chapter 12 opens, John has a flashback for the purpose of identifying the first of seven very intriguing characters introduced in the Revelation. Revelations 12, verse 1. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. Everybody say with me, great significance. Now, does that mean that we ought to pay real attention to this? Oh, yeah, because it's great significance. This is significant. I saw a woman... And she was clothed with the sun, and the moon was beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. What is this? Well, the woman John saw is none other than Israel. See, how do you know it's Israel? Because in Genesis 37, you remember Joseph had a dream. And in the dream, he saw the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars bowing to him. And it says, soon Joseph had another dream, and he, he told his brothers, big mistake. Joseph was a, was a wonderful, great man of God, but he made some really dumb mistakes when he was young. You don't go tell your brothers you had a dream from God that they were bowing down to you. 
Joseph said, listen, I've had another dream. The sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. Now, how did Jacob interpret the dream? Jacob, his father, verse 10 says in Genesis 37, what kind of dream is that? Jacob asked, will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? So Jacob knew that the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars were representative of him and his sons and the future Israel. So Jacob and his 12 sons comprised the embryonic nation of Israel, right? And the great wonder that John saw was Israel was pregnant. But pregnant with whom? Revelations 12, 2 says she was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains, the agony of giving birth. Now, this is none other than a symbolic picture of Israel bringing forth a wonder child. Christ Jesus, the Lord, the promised Messiah. Because why did God call Abraham in the first place? That all that through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And how are all the nations of the world blessed through Abraham? Through his descendants that brought forth the promised Messiah, promised first in Genesis 3.15, the bruiser of Satan's head. So this is a symbolic picture that John is being shown. It's Israel pregnant, giving birth, but then something else happens. Verse 3, then I saw in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, with seven crowns on his head. Now, who's the dragon? The dragon is clearly the devil. Thirteen times in Revelation, the devil is called a dragon. So this is the devil. And his seven heads, you know, Bible numerology, I'm not big on numerology, but I'll tell you this much. Uh, Seven is the number for completion. So his seven heads depict the evil perfection of his influence on civilization's progress during the Great Tribulation. The ten horns, horns always represent authority. They're a prediction of a final alignment of Gentile world powers that will stand in league with Antichrist during the Tribulation. Ten Gentile nations are going to shake hands with Antichrist and join him. And look what the devil attempts to do in verse 4. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to do what, everybody? Read it with me. Devour, come on, her baby as soon as it was born. Whose baby? What's the baby? Christ. Now, what does this take us back to? It takes us back to Herod. And when Jesus was born, Herod ordered the death of every male child, two years old and under, in all of Bethlehem. And Herod was totally under the influence of Satan, the dragon. And what was he trying to do? Devour the child as soon as it was born and stop the ministry. But more than anything, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which was Satan's worst nightmare. But look what happens in verse 5, and we come to a close. She gave birth to the son. Was Jesus born? Amen. 
And look what it says about him. Who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. That's Jesus. And her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. Yeah. Because when Jesus was born, God delivered him from the hands of Herod. And Jesus lived died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, and then after 40 days was taken back up into heaven, just as verse 5 says. So we're looking back now in history. And John is being given a picture, sort of a, 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 just a symbolic picture of Christ and the warfare that accompanied his birth. The devil didn't succeed. Next time we're together, we're going to see that John is transported back to the future to be shown the final last day's events. Everybody say amen. I don't want to give you any more because I don't want to pop your head. But that's a lot, amen? That's a lot. And, and how many of you are amazed at the Word of God like I am? It's, it's an amazing book. What an amazing book. How true it is. So what I want to do is it, we're great with time tonight. So if you have a question, I'm going to take two or three questions if anybody has them. And Johnny is going to run the mic to you. So if you've got a question about what I've shared, please make it a Bible question. You can't. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. Um, we were talking last week, I was going to ask you the question, but I wasn't able to. It's about the uh, Abram Accords, and not all the countries that got in with that, but there was supposed to be that treaty between Israel and the Arab nations and all that to get together right. to bring along this, the Antichrist to come into the temple there. Yes, uh, the, yes. So I was wondering what you knew about that, because on the 75th anniversary, I had heard that they had started making plans, construction plans, to rebuild the temple, the third exactly. temple. Exactly, that's third true. Temple. So I know this is coming about soon. And also the flack that they're getting because I guess some of the Jews that believe that's where Jesus is supposed to come back in through the Eastern Gate. Yes. And that uh, old, I can't remember what he said. Yeah. One of the Muslim guys had built a, a graveyard there so that way the Jews can't be there or whatever. I don't know. But what are your, what's your take well, on that? Well, my take is somehow, some way, someday, the temple is going to be rebuilt. Um, it's conjecture because it, it's sort of like how did John know there would be the ability to see for the whole world to see something until, you know, nobody understood it until the 20th century. Then we saw, well, this is how it's going to happen via television, internet, so on and so forth. So with the rebuilding of the temple and somehow the dissolution of the, of the dome of the rock, could it be an earthquake? Could it be a, a war? Could it be somebody bombs it? Um, could it be some other natural disaster? We don't know. But the temple will be rebuilt because we saw last week in book of Revelation that the angel tells John to measure off the temple. Well, that's during the tribulation period. So the temple will be there. And uh, who, who knows how it's going to happen. But if you wake up, and you see, as a matter of fact, you can Google it now that um, all the resolution and the plans to build a temple are already there. 
And so it, it's just a matter of time. It's one of those unfulfilled pro- prophecies, but it will be in due time. Amen? All right. Someone else. Yes, in uh, Second Peter, um, Peter says that the Lord spoke, or no, um, a day unto the Lord is a thousand years. Yes. And a thousand years is unto a day. But in Genesis, the Lord uh, spoke the world into existence. It says it took him six days. Mm-hmm. Was it 6,000? No. Or no. six literal days? The Hebrew word used uh, for day in Genesis is one 24-hour period. Um, Peter is just telling us about God. A day unto the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. He's just letting us know God doesn't inhabit time. So God sees the end from the beginning. He sees all of history in one glance. He doesn't inhabit time. So to him, a thousand years is a blink of the eye. It's nothing. And that's what he's letting us know. Our God is timeless. We are in time right now. Uh, Look at a picture of you from a year ago, and you know what I mean. We are subject to time where everything ages, everything. So uh, that's, that's what he's saying there in Peter. All right, any more questions? Another question? Yes, right here, okay. So this is from a couple days ago on our reading. Yes. Our, through the Bible. Yes. The disobedient prophet explained that why he didn't, why he told the other prophet to come eat with him, and he 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 was not supposed to go anywhere. He was going supposed to go yes. straight on, and the prophet yes. came and lied to him. But it didn't look like the prophet who lied to him yeah. got. Were you his in due. Judges? I, wherever we are, a couple days ago, okay. reading. Uh, this is the story of the the younger prophet that was sent to um, on a task by God. He, and God said, go do it, and don't, don't uh, collect 200, don't pass, go. Isn't that how you say it? Something like that. He said, do it and come right back. Don't tarry, but come right back. But an older prophet saw that he was there and that he had been totally accurate in what he had prophesied. So the older prophet talked him into stopping and eating with him and spending time with him. And then when he wanted to leave, he talked him into staying even longer. So this older prophet talked the younger prophet into blowing it. And so when the young prophet finally left, a lion met him on the way and killed him. Like, you know, say the older prophet, thanks a lot. Now I'm, you know, I'm the lion's lunch. So people have always wondered, why did the older prophet do that? Well, here's the way I choose to look at the story. I choose to look at it this way. It's it's a message about punctuality. It's a message about obedience. It's a message about when God tells you to do something, no matter how convincing the person is that tries to talk you out of doing what God said, You obey God. You obey God. Because this older prophet was very convincing. He was a prophet, right? So this younger prophet might have been enamored by him. I don't know. But to me, it's like Saul when he waited on Samuel and Samuel didn't show. In the three days that he had told him, wait three days and I'm going to come back. On the third day, uh, 
Saul yielded to pressure, peer pressure, and um, um, he was afraid for his army and afraid for his own life. So he offered a sacrifice that only a priest could offer. He, he stepped out of the will of God because it looked like Samuel was late and wasn't going to make it and they might die. But Samuel said, obedience is greater than sacrifice. And what Saul should have done is, well, Samuel's late, but I know this, I'm not a priest. I am not going to get out of the will of God and offer something I'm not authorized to offer. So Samuel showed said, because you did this, you lost the kingdom. So again, the message is when God tells you to do something, doesn't matter who, how convincing, boyfriend, girlfriend, mom, dad, if, if, if they're telling you to do something against God's will for you, you obey. You obey. And God will honor it because that man became lunch for a lion. What a horrible way to die, right? Okay, one more. Here we go. Robert. Do you think that the Ark of the Covenant that you just read in verse 19, is that the same Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones was hunting for? I don't, I, I don't know because I don't think it's Indiana Jones' Ark, but um, the Ark is long gone. So I don't know. Uh, they may very well um, construct another one, put it in there, uh, redo the cherubim, rebuild the cherubim, the whole thing. I don't know. I just know there will be an inner sanctum because that's where the abomination of desolation must take place. But whether it's the ark, uh, you know, it had, it had the law in it. It had Aaron's rod that budded in it. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. That's one of those unknowns. Just don't know. But the temple will be there. Anyone else? Uh, you're not on, Johnny. I don't know what's going on. There we go. About the ark, First uh, Kings eight nine and Hebrews nine four, it kind of confuses me. Uh, like you said, Hebrews nine four says the rod that budded and all that is in the ark, mm-hmm. but First Kings eight nine uh, says that there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there in Horeb, where the Lord made the covenant with Israel. I yeah, by that time, that's all that was in there. Um, but. Before that, the ark had had three things in it. It had the law, it had Aaron's rod that budded, and what was the third one? Manna, to remind the people of God's provision for 40 years in the wilderness. It's in, it's in Hebrews that says all of that, but in Kings it says only the tablets of stone. So the timeline confused me. Does that make sense? Yeah, say that again. I'm sorry. So, so in the Hebrews, mic. which was written by, well, I believe Paul, way later. Mm-hmm. But First Kings says that only the tablets of stone were in there. Yeah. And then way later, it says that the manna, the air, the rod, and the stone tablets. Yeah, so. I don't know. I can look that up, but I'll tell you, it could be that it was added later. I'm not sure. I need to look up the timing of it and see. But there, there were for sure three things in it at one time. And I read that the other day about it was just the, the law. And uh, I thought, okay, what happened to the other two? But um, they, they were once there. Why there was only the law at that time, I don't know. But um, it's a very important item 
for the Holy of Holies. I don't know if they're going to rebuild it. I don't know what will be in there. Um, like I said, if they rebuild the cherubim, those gorgeous cherubim with the wings meeting, and you know, I don't know if God would allow the Shekinah glory to be there once again since Christ has died and risen. I kind of doubt it. I think it will be more of a symbolic thing. But he'll walk in there and say, I am God. And that is when, boof, the desolation falls. Okay? All right, let's stand, everybody. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we just thank you for your blessing tonight, for the goodness of God. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. We thank you for the truth of this word. And we thank you, Lord, that let God be true and every man a liar. Thy word, Lord, is truth. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this glimpse of what is coming. But even more than that, Lord, that it all leads up to a new world that's coming. Jesus Christ, ruling with a rod of iron and righteousness and peace in Jesus' name. Amen.